Take your Bibles, Luke chapter 9. The children can be dismissed at this time. The evens will take them to the back and teach them uh, on their level. That will be a blessing for them. While you turn to Luke chapter 9. It is a blessed thing to have friends, isn't it? Uh, There's a British publication that once offered a prize for the best definition of a friend. And among the answers that were received were some of the following. One who multiplies joys, divides grief, and whose honesty is steadfast. And there's another one. One who understands our silence. That's a good friend, isn't it? Uh, A friend is one who warns you. The winning definition of that little contest was this one, though. A friend is one who comes in when the whole world goes out. It's a lot of value in having a good friend, isn't it? A friend, if you, uh, if you fall on the ice, a friend will be there to help you back up. A good friend will laugh at you first, uh, but they'll both help you back up. Amen. We've been looking at friends that surrounded the Lord Jesus in His life while He was on earth. Now, Jesus impacted thousands of people with His preaching, with His miracles, with all the things that were involved in His ministry. But He impacted a select few in a much greater way who then went on to impact their thousands. And I want to, we've been kind of focusing on those close relationships that He has had with some of these people. Now we've looked at several disciples that uh, are not so familiar to us. Uh, Simon the Zealot and Andrew were a little bit more of background characters, and so we've studied uh, their life. But today's friend is much more well-known. In fact, he wrote much of the New Testament. Matter of fact, he wrote, uh, more, he wrote more of the New Testament than anybody else except for Luke and the Apostle Paul. Because of that, we learn a lot about his personality, about his character. One of the fascinating things about the Apostle John is the tremendous change that Jesus affected in his life. The Apostle of Love, John. On June 4th, 1783, at a market square in a French village not far from Paris, history was being made. A bonfire was lit on a raised platform, and above that bonfire was an inverted, huge inverted bag upside down that allowed the heat to go in it. Uh, this uh, fire was fed by straw and wool rags. And this uh, balloon that they were filling up, they were trying to do the very first hot air balloon uh, lift off there and, and try to have the first time that that ever happened. And uh, so amidst the much cheering of the crowd and the hundreds of people that were there, this balloon was cut from its moorings and set free. It rose majestically into the noon sky and it rose actually 6,000 feet into the air. This is the first time that this was done successfully after many attempts, and it's really the first step in the history of human flight. It came to earth two miles away. It went 6,000 feet up. It traveled two miles where it came down in a field and was promptly attacked by pitchfork-waving peasants. It was torn to pieces as an instrument of evil. People don't like change. In fact, they resist it. They often fight against it. But if we're going to be the kind of Christians God wants us to be, we need to be open to Him changing us 
into the person we ought to be for the Lord. I want to look today at a man called John. He's known in the Bible as the Apostle of Love, but he did not start that way. And I want to look at some of that, uh, some of the things we can learn from his life. Let's start reading Luke chapter 9, and we're going to begin in verse number 51. And it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers before his face, and they went and they entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. They did not receive him because his face was as though it would go to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias did? They said, no, we're not interested in what you have to say. Lord, should we bring down fire to burn them up? That's a little bit of an overreaction, don't you think? This is their reaction. We knock on their door... No thanks, we're not interested. Lord, can we call down fire from heaven and just consume them all? Think about this response. Look at what he says in verse 55. But he turned and rebuked them and said, You know not what matter of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. John, the apostle of love. Father, I pray you'd help us today as we look at this life Help us to find ourselves in John. Help us to realize the areas that we need to change. And I pray you'd uh, help us to be obedient to whatever you direct us to, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John, uh, just a few facts about John that we can pull from his writings and his life. John was somebody. He wasn't like many of the apostles, obscure and very little known, as we look through the Gospels, we see that John really was somebody. He seems to have come from some wealth and influence. One way that we can see this is that John's family had some serious connections, politically speaking. The night that Jesus was arrested and he was taken off, we read that Peter followed at a distance. And the Bible says in John 18, and Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple, this is John. That disciple was thrown into the high priest and went in with Jesus into the palace of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door without. So Peter's not allowed to go in. They don't know him. But John they know. And John's able to talk to the servant there. And then went that other disciple, which was known unto the high priest, and spake unto her that kept the door and brought in Peter. So he had the connections. He was well enough known that he could go in and speak to the people in charge and vouch for Peter. And then they would both be allowed to come in. Not only did the high priest know him, but he had access to where he was. He had significant sway. And one of the reasons for this is probably because his father Zebedee was a person of some wealth and uh, some connections as well. John came from a fishing family. In Mark chapter 1, we see that Jesus has been walking, uh, came walking by and there was Peter and Andrew and James and John were there among others. And uh, he straightway, he called them, it says, and they left their father Zebedee in the ship with the hired servants. The fact that they had hired servants means that this business was sizable. And they probably had a very successful uh, fishing business with many ships. We know they had at least more than one uh, boat. And so this, coupled with the relationship with the high priest, tells me that they were a family of some importance. But it goes a little further for John. Uh, most Bible scholars, including Myself, if I'm not calling myself a scholar, I'm just saying I believe this, uh, that John was the cousin of Jesus. 
Now, this is not expressly mentioned in Scripture, but there is some evidence for that. In John 19.25, the Bible says, Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother, uh, by the cross of Jesus his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. Then in Mark 15.40, when it lists these women, it says there were also women looking on afar off, among whom was Mary Magdalene, and uh, Mary, the mother of James, the less, and of Joseph, Joseph and Salomon. If you take these two passages together, and then if Mary, the wife of Cleophas, is also the mother of James, the less, then that would mean that Salome would be Jesus' mother, Mary's sister. That would explain why their relationship was as close as it was. And immediately when they joined the uh, the apostles' rank there as disciples, then Jesus had them in his inner circle. And this might explain why that would be. And uh, also the reason that that uh, John would adopt Mary and care for her the rest of her days at the cross there uh, if they were related. And early in Jesus' ministry, we see that he went to a wedding and his mother Mary was there. And a few other people were there that he knew among them. James and John. And, uh, and so the probably it was a family affair that they were all related to. So this is John. He was a man of some standing. He had connections. He had some wealth probably in his family and he was possibly related to Jesus. So this is who John was as a person. But one thing that we see about John early on, as well as his brother James, is that John was a hothead. He had a bit of a temper. Uh, in fact, John is known as the disciple of love in the Bible. He uses the word love uh, 39 times in his gospel. He uses it 34 times in his epistles. He uses it eight times in the book of Revelation. And so 81 times John uses the word, of, uh, the word love. But again, that is not how he started out. Mark calls him and his brother... Uh, Bo, uh, Bonerges in chapter 3, verse 17, which is translated sons of thunder. Now, the word Bonerges comes from an Aramaic word which literally means rage. He was a hothead. He had a temper on him. Have you ever known someone like that? Someone with a bad temper, quick to lose it? Malcolm was a, uh, who, uh, a man who had a terrible temper, was playing a round of golf with his pastor. If you have a terrible temper, you probably don't want to play around a golf with your pastor. But he was, and after three straight putts failed, and he got just to the corner of the cup, he just lost it, and he he uh, he threw his putter into the lake. He kicked the tire of the of the uh, cart they were driving, and he slammed his fist into a tree. The pastor was appalled. He says, "I've never seen such a temper." He said to Malcolm, don't you know that there's angels whose specific purpose is to find someone like you with a temper like yours, send lightning down from heaven and burn them to a crisp? Well, Malcolm was a little bit embarrassed, and for the next few holes, he controlled himself. But the last three holes, again, the same thing happened. He'd putt, and it went just by the hole, and it missed, and he couldn't take it anymore. And uh, like he did the first time, he says, I missed. How could I miss? And so the second time this came around, again, uh, he was getting so close and couldn't get through, and so he lost his temper again. I missed, he says. How could I miss? And again, he punched a tree, broke his club over his knee. Suddenly the sky drew dark, 
black clouds, clap of thunder, burst of lightning, and the pastor was burned to a crisp. There was an eerie silence. All that was, uh, could be heard next was a voice from heaven. I missed. How could I miss? I'm just, I'm just saying God doesn't like it when we lose our temper. Amen? We ought to be in control. In fact, the Bible says that he who controls his spirit is greater than he that takes a city. John had this problem in his younger years. He had a temper. Only a few times in the Bible do we see John speak. In, the, in this text is one of them. He, along with his brother James, they wanted to call down fire from heaven on Samaritans simply because they didn't receive him. Uh, they didn't receive Jesus. By the way, this wouldn't be the first time for the Samaritans. In Second Kings chapter, uh, I'm sorry, First Kings chapter one, Elijah called down fire from heaven to destroy King Ahaziah's soldiers. This also happened in Samaria. He, John, wanted these people dead because they just rejected him. So he said, let's kill him. If you study the Gospels, you'll notice that John is almost always named with other people. It's John and Peter. It's John and James. And, and uh, so he's, he's named with other people. But we find another time that John appears to speak alone. In Mark chapter 9, verse 38, he came to Jesus and he said, hey, he told Jesus about this man. He's out casting out demons in your name. But I want you to know, Jesus, I rebuked him because he's not one of us. That was John's response. In both cases, John is displaying anger in the form of extreme intolerance and a lack of love for people. In the incident with the Samaritans, John shows a lack of love for unbelievers. In this incident here in Mark 9, he shows a lack of love for a fellow believer. He was volatile, he was brash, he was aggressive, he was passionate, he was zealous, and he was personally ambitious. But praise God, he didn't stay that way. He allowed God to change him. Through his relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, he did a 180 and his life changed. Jesus transformed him into to a different man, one who modeled the type of love that Jesus showed to him throughout their time together. John used the word truth 45 times in his gospel and in his epistles. But as I mentioned, he used the word love 81 times. This is very important to me. It's very fascinating to me as a pastor and as a speaker because there's a balance here that needs to be kept. He learned the balance between these two, truth and love, the way that Jesus taught him. Can I tell you today that truth is from the Word of God and is non-negotiable. We do not negotiate the truth that comes from the Word of God. We are constantly today pressured to accept truth as our culture presents it. Uh, we, if we go against the tide of culture, the LGBTQEIEIO movement, if we go against that, then we are bigots. If we speak against abortion, then we are against women. If we hold to New Testament views of church leadership, then we're old-fashioned and out of date. But society, my friend, does not determine what we believe. That book determines what we believe. And that truth is non-negotiable. And so, as society changes, we are to remain steadfast on the truths of God's Word. And I will add, by the way, and you know this, those accusations are absolutely false. We don't hate people because we don't embrace their lifestyle. You can disagree with what a person does and still love that person. 
We can be disgusted by sin and yet show the love of Christ to sinners. Today is no secret. I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. We are having a trans movement jammed down our throats. We are uh, being uh, forced to not only accept it, but to approve it and embrace it. The idea that you can be one thing and identify as another thing and everybody else has to just accept it. I'm going to be identify as invisible. And you have to accept that I'm invisible. Transparent, that's what I am. Uh, you have to accept it. My pronouns are who and where, okay? You understand? And you say, that's silly. It's no more silly than a man competing in a woman's swim team, amen? Our, our nation, our society, our culture is losing their mind. And yet, we are not dictated and guided by culture. We are guided by the Word of God. That's truth. We hold to the truth and we don't give it up. However, there's also love. We're supposed to love. And if we are 100% truth and zero love, we're not going to have any impact in this culture for the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was disgusted by sin more than any of us ever have been, and yet He ate with sinners. He spent time with sinners. He loved sinners. He welcomed sinners into His presence. And I think that we need to have the kind of balance that he has. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 15, it's the, it's the uh, memory verse this week. And by the way, if you haven't learned the memory verses, learn this one. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things which is the head, even Christ. We are never to compromise the truth, but we are to show love. And Jesus Christ had that balance. Now, I'd like to contrast, just for the sake of trying to get this through our heads this morning, two different groups of people, two different uh, uh, opposite extremes, if you will, uh, people today, and, and this is not people outside of us, this is us, this is our, uh, uh, churches just like us, Christians just like us, this is people in our camp can be found in these two extremes. Uh, number one, this and the idea of love and truth. Number one is if you have love, without truth. If you only have love without truth, this group is led by their emotions. They consider their spirituality as enlightened above others because they're so full of love. The de one definition of a new evangelical that I read is a person who hates people who don't love. A person who hates people who don't love. You've seen that. I... Uh, recently saw Joel Osteen was interviewed on TV by a non-Christian. And this non-Christian asked him about the homosexual movement. And Mr. Osteen, a pastor, said, well, you know, I just try to stay in my lane. I don't try to deal with all that. I just stay in my lane. And this, I found it interesting, this unsaved person is pressing the issue. Yeah, but the Bible says that is wrong. What, that's what the Bible says. And you're a pastor. What do you have to say about what the Bible says Versus what do you teach? You know, he says, I just love people. I don't get involved in those things, and I'm just going to stay in my lane. Let me tell you, friend, we do not do a favor to a dying world by excusing their sin. We do not excuse sin and do people favors by that. Real love doesn't do that, but love without truth does. 
And so uh, what the motto is, come as you are, leave as you were, stay as you are. This group of people will not deal with the root issue of sin. They will not confront sin from the pulpit or from their own life. I'm talking about love without truth. These type of people will produce shallow churches and shallow lives because they don't ever uh, promote truth. That's all about just feel-good love. That Their churches will be uplifting, feel-good, motivational speakers, not preachers of the Word of God. I like what Adrian Rogers said, It is better to be divided by truth than to be united in error. It is better to speak the truth that hurts and then heals than falsehood that comforts and then kills. If it is not, it is not love, he says, if we fail to declare the whole counsel of God. It is better to be hated for telling the truth than to be loved for telling a lie. Well, we need more preachers like that. So the answer is not love without truth. Then there's another extreme. Truth without love. That can be equally as damaging. This is a message packaged in harsh, harshness. They will not connect with those who are not like them. In fact, they'll have no desire to connect with anybody who's not like them. They do not love sinners. They do not love the lost. This is illustrated when John, here in this passage, wants to call fire down from heaven and destroy somebody because they didn't listen to what he said. Jesus responded, in our, and we read it a minute ago, in verse 55, but he turned and rebuked them and said, You know not what manner of spirit you are, for the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's life, but to save them. They had the wrong spirit. Did you know, friend, you can be saved and have the wrong spirit? You can believe the right thing and have the wrong spirit. You can have the truth and be a jerk about it. And we're not to be a jerk about it. We're to love people. And we're not to love pe- we're not to love only people who agree with us in every way. We're supposed to love people the way that Jesus did. And so I ask you today, what kind of spirit do you have? Jesus said that you can have a bad spirit and not even be aware that you have a bad spirit. He says you know not what spirit you're of. You guys are being jerks and you don't even realize it, he said. What kind of spirit do you have? The problem is you can do the right thing. You can believe the right thing and be consumed with a bad spirit. Oh, I hope, friend, we aren't, uh, don't have that type of spirit. This group, truth without love, is demanding that we be just like them. Their motto are, is this, come as you are and we'll reject you because you need to be like me before I accept you. Because they are right. They have a chapter and verse to prove they're right. And Jesus was the perfect example of the balance between truth and love. He asked a question in Matthew 16, 33. The disciples and he are sitting around and they're talking and having this conversation. And Jesus asked a question. Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Interesting question, by the way. I'm a little bit obsessed with that question as it applies to Bible Baptist Church. Who do people say that we are? That's important to me, friends. That's a really important issue to me. I don't want to be known as a church that doesn't love people. I don't want to be known as a church that is an us for no more and not welcoming anybody. We want people to know that we love people 
And uh, I hope that's our reputation. But the answer that they gave to Jesus' question speaks volumes about Jesus' spirit in dealing with people. Listen carefully here. This is what they answered, Matthew 16, 14. And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, and some Elias, and some Jeremiah. That is very interesting. They named three men that people associated Jesus with. John the Baptist, Elijah, and Jeremiah. Each of these are instructive to us because all of them, although they are very different, they connected people to how Jesus was, the type of person Jesus was, the type of ministry he had. Let's break him down very quickly. First, they said John the Baptist. John the Baptist was strong in doctrine. Man, he preached things as they were. The man ate grasshoppers, all right? If you're going to eat grasshoppers, you're going to probably preach pretty straight. And, of course, you're going to be angry because you're eating grasshoppers, amen? So he was one of those preachers. He didn't have a bunch of love. He didn't uh, spend much time uh, uh, placating people. He just preached it as it was. He thundered truth no matter who was listening. One day he's baptizing people, and the ministerial association shows up. Oh, boy, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And you know what happens when the ministerial association shows up. you got to tone it down. You can't be extreme. You've got to be... Inclusive. You have to be easygoing. The ministerial association is going to spread bad things about you. And uh, we're all trying to help our community after all. Let's work together with them. Here's what John did. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said, O generation of vipers, who hath warned thee to flee from the wrath to come? That's not very nice. Some say you're John the Baptist. That tells me Jesus didn't mince words when he preached. He also thundered against them. He lifted the word as truth as well. He thundered against the same people in Mark, uh, in Matthew 23, 1. He said, but woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. People will die and go to hell because of you. That's what he said to the Pharisees. Whew, that's tough speaking. Jesus knew how to thunder the truth, just like John the Baptist And so, so much so that when he said, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Some say you're John the Baptist. Then they said, Some say that you're Elijah. Now, Elijah was the prophet of miracles. He did all kinds of miracles in the Old Testament. He's the one that said the word, and it didn't rain for three and a half years. I wish we had a prophet today that could make it warm. Don't you? I'd... I'd bring him on staff here at Bible Baptist Church. Amen? That would uh, be good. But anyway, uh, he was the one that was fed by ravens. He, uh, he was the one that uh, provided the, the Lord through him, obviously. You know what I'm saying? But uh, the miracle of the, the meal and the oil that never ran out for the widow, he was the one that resurrected the widow's son, First, uh, first Kings chapter 17. He's the one that stood on top of an altar... And uh, after they had drenched it with all kinds of water, and he prays to the Lord, and fire falls down from heaven and licks up the, fu- uh, the water in that altar. 1 Kings 18. It's obvious why Jesus would be related to Elijah, because of the miracles that he did. Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Some say Elijah. And then they said, some say Jeremiah. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. In Jeremiah 9, 1, he said, Oh, that my head were waters and that my eyes were fountains of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slaying of the daughters of my people. 
He was known to have compassion for those that he preached to. All throughout his life, we see him weeping before God on behalf of his people and weeping before people on behalf of their God. He warns Judah of judgment if they do not repent. He pleads with God to spare the people and he weeps because no one will listen to what he has to say. Jesus also wept for people. In Luke chapter 19, we just talked about it a few weeks ago on Palm Sunday. He comes in on the, in the triumphal entry and people are cheering and waving palm branches and are laying down their cloaks so that he doesn't have to walk on the ground. And, and uh, he's coming into cheers and excitement in this great parade and this day of rejoicing. Uh, it was a day of rejoicing, but people didn't understand what he was all about. In verse 41 of Luke 19, it says, When he came near, he beheld the city and wept over it. Like the prophet Jeremiah before him, Jesus wept because he knows people didn't understand what he was all about. They want him now, but in a week they would be crying, crucify him, crucify him, because they didn't want salvation. They wanted earthly deliverance. What do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Some say that thou art Jeremiah's. What a balance. John the Baptist, truth. Elijah, his works, his miracles. And Jeremiah, his heart, his love. Oh, if we could have the balance that Jesus had. If we could just have that balance between truth, which is vitally important, and love, which is absolutely essential for our Christian life. It seems that humankind is prone to extremes. We tend to go too far one way or too far the other. And Jesus stood for the truth. 100%, but at the same time, there was never a question. He had an authentic love for sinners. Friend, if you, like John, suffer with impatience and anger and a harsh spirit, you don't need to stay that way. John went from the son of thunder to the apostle of love. Just as a relationship with Jesus Christ changed him, it can change you too, my friend. Love was a quality that John learned from Christ. It did not come natural to him. And God will give you, Jesus, through a relationship with him, through being his friend, will turn you into the type of the person you thought you could never be because of a relationship with him. Maybe you, like John, feel that you are somebody. Maybe you've seen some success in your life, and so you feel that you deserve a certain amount of esteem. That brings us to the next part of John's life. John learned humility. Turn with me to Mark chapter 9, if you would. Mark chapter 9. I want to show you a really neat story. We have an amazing scene laid out before us here in Mark chapter 9. Jesus takes his three closest disciples, Peter, and then his cousins, James and John, they went up to Mount Hermon. This is the most beautiful mountain in Palestine. Even in the heat of the summer, you can still see bands of white snow on top on its peak. And when they were up there, suddenly Jesus began to shine in all his glory. The Bible says it was so bright they couldn't even look upon him because of the glory that overtook him. No one on earth had ever experienced anything remotely like this. Even Moses in the Old Testament, you remember that? He says, I want to see your glory. God made him stand behind a rock and he only saw the back parts of God as he went. He didn't even see all the glory that these men saw today. Then Jesus in his glorified state uh, was joined by the Israelite heroes, Moses and Elijah. 
and they started to talk together. I can't imagine Moses and Elijah show up to Jesus. Hey, how's it going? What's it been, 30 years? You know, just having a conversation with each other. And while they're there talking, I want you to see something that's it, it's kind of funny. Look at verse 5. And Peter said, answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make the three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, now, follow me on this. This is, this is hilarious. Peter starts talking here. He's, uh, the others are just drinking in the scene. And Peter starts talking, and then it tells us why in verse 6. Look what it says. For he wist not what to say, for they were so afraid. Okay. He didn't know what to say, so he started talking. Isn't that something? That's hilarious to me. If you don't know what to say, don't start talking, amen? That's when you're going to say some really foolish things. Uh, you're going to say something stupid at that point. And better to be thought of as a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt, amen? This is just what... Uh, happened here. He didn't know what to say, and so Peter being Peter, he starts talking. And then God himself interrupted Peter, and uh, he, this is what God, or I should say he rebukes Peter, this is my beloved son. Now it says in Matthew 17, 5, while he yet spake, God interrupted him. So this is how it went down. Peter's seeing all this, and he's just amazed. They don't, they're all fearful. They don't know what to think. And so, Peter, I don't know what to say, so I think I'm going to start talking. And he says, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Eli. This is my beloved son. He interrupted him, rebuked him because of what he was saying. Peter did what so many of us do. He takes a mountaintop experience and then tries to build himself up in it. Tries to make it about him. I guess Peter thought, well, obviously, Moses and Elijah, sir. Moses and Elijah, they're, they're here to meet me. I mean, you know, they're here to meet James and John. They're here to check us out. And no, they were the ones that in the Old Testament pointed toward Christ, and they were here to see Christ now. Anyway, I, all that story is, is kind of beside the point for another point I want to make uh, for what came next. Because think about what that scene meant for these three men. You have the sons of thunder and the king of foot and mouth, and they're all there on the mountain, and they see this uh, sight that no human being has ever experienced alive before. And as they come down off the mountain, Jesus says, by the way, don't tell anything, anybody anything about what you saw here. That's hard. My, you can't even tell anybody. John's already been on his cell phone signing a book deal. The Sons of Thunder, view from the top, you know. And uh, now they can't tell anyone? Now jump ahead, because this is all a part of this in verse number 33. And he came to Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked, as Jesus, what was it you disputed among yourselves, by the way? So... They came back to Capernaum, uh, uh, probably the house is talking about Peter's house, they're here. On their way back to the house, the disciples are having a conversation. Scratch that. The disciples are having an argument about who is the greatest. Now think about what these guys just saw on the mountain and how that would apply to the conversation that they're having. Matthew might say, I am the most educated one here. 
I have studied more than anybody else. To which John could reply, listen, publican, you don't have a clue. I've seen things, man. But they couldn't talk about what they had seen. They couldn't use the info. They couldn't discuss it. But personally, I, I have to think that probably the discussion was more among the three that had been on the mountaintop about who was the greatest. Peter, I was the closest. Did you see when Moses came to walk toward Jesus, he said, hey, how you doing? He said that to me. He acknowledged me. I'm the greatest. I'm the first listed in all the lists in the Bible. John, are you forgetting that God Himself told you to shut up? You know, they could argue back and forth, so they did. They argued. And we read this and we say, ah, oh, these guys. We don't do the same thing. We do the same thing all the time. I should have gotten that promotion, not her. Why does he get all the credit? Why does she get all the attention? I'm just as good as they are. Forget that. I'm better than they are. We do the same thing all the time. So now Jesus asked the question here in verse 33, what were you guys arguing about back there? Like he didn't know. So, what are you guys discussing? Look what it says in verse 34, but they held their peace, for by the way they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. Get the picture. They've just seen Jesus in all his glory. And they're talking about which one of them is the greatest? And then Jesus asked them about it. Would you want to tell Jesus what you were discussing? I wouldn't want to tell Jesus what I was discussing. And so they did exactly what Ida did. They held their peace. What Peter should have done a long time ago. Been quiet. They were ashamed of themselves. And we do the same thing when we take a spiritual mountaintop experience to build ourselves up. Pastor Nick and I were discussing this this week and he's reading a book and pointed out something that I thought is really fascinating. If you read the book of Psalms, take a highlighter, and as you read the book of Psalms, highlight every time that David talks about how he killed Goliath. You know what you'll end up with in the end? A brand new highlighter, because you're never going to find it. You're not going to highlight any places in the book of Psalms where David talks about that. And that's so different than how we operate, isn't it? I mean, if it were me... In the place of David, hey, hi, nice to meet you. I'm David. I'm the one that killed Goliath. Uh, would you like a signed photo? I've got a photo of me holding Goliath's head here. I'll sign the back of it for you. That would be us, wouldn't it? We would put it on our business cards. You know how some people can work into any conversation something they've done in the past? It's annoying as all get out. It's going to be a sunny day today. That reminds me, it was a sunny day the day I killed Goliath. We're always working it in because we build ourselves up and we'll use a mountaintop experience that something God did for us, not us, and we'll use it to build ourselves up. Tragedy that we do such a thing. We ought to be ashamed of ourselves when we put more energy into trying to build ourselves up than on, on Him. Jesus said in verse 35 here, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. In one sentence, he turned upside down their ranking system. And he turns ours upside down as well. The way to true greatness as a Christian is to become the servant of all. Wow. And I like how Jesus is so, is so uh, generous there. He didn't force them to say what they were talking about. When they all sat around with sheepish faces and nobody wanted to say what they'd been discussing. 
then he gives him this wisdom. If you want to be first, if you really want to be the greatest, be the servant of all. That's God's economy, different than our economy. John got the message. He learned the lessons. He became a human model of what Christ-like character ought to be. We see this demonstrated on the cross. If you'll remember, John is the only disciple out of all of them that the Bible records was at the foot of the cross when Jesus was getting crucified. John himself describes the scene as Jesus looked down from the cross in John 19, 26, when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple standing by whom he loved. He said to his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own house. Obviously, John had learned the lessons that he needed to learn about humility and servanthood. Jesus would not have given him the care of his own mother, had he not. He told Peter, feed my sheep. He told John, take care of my mother. John had obviously earned this. Early church history records that John never left Jerusalem or the care of Mary until the day she died. History tells us that John himself died around A.D. 98. He was so frail in his final days as the pastor at Ephesus that he had to be carried to the church. One phrase they write that was continually on his lips is, My little children love one another. From the lips of the same man that knocked on somebody's door and they said, No, we're not interested. And he said, Let's call fire down from heaven and burn them to a crisp. Now he's... My little children love one another. That's Jesus that did that in his life. That's Jesus that took him from the hothead to the apostle of love. And can I tell you, friend, he can do the same for you. Oh, we get discouraged because of our own efforts and we try to change, we try to conform ourselves. The Bible never tells us to conform ourselves. It tells us to transform ourselves. And we do that through the Word of God and we do it through allowing Him uh, to work through us. What a change. John outlived all the other apostles. He had a tremendous impact in the early church. He was a man with many faults, and Jesus loved him anyway. He was a man that allowed God to transform him into what he ought to be. And I ask you today, will you do the same? Will you allow Jesus Christ to work in your life and turn you into the man, woman, young person that God wants you to be. This is the story of John, a friend of Jesus. What will your story be, friend? Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed.